Dramatic Health Production. Forget genius. In many ways, the significant advances in modern medicine can be viewed as little more than the product of a happy combination of dumb luck and coincidence. As you are about to hear, some of healthcare's most significant milestones were the result of fortuitous accidents followed by scientific rigor. But serendipity and science alone don't improve health and healthcare. It took curious, creative, and persistent individuals to bring these accidental discoveries from the lab bench to the patient bedside. These are their stories. This is Game Changers in Medicine. Hello. Welcome to Smallpox Vaccine, the bonus episode. In our recent episode on the discovery of the smallpox vaccine, we were fortunate to hear from several noted doctors and virologists. They shared their expertise on how vaccines work and offered plenty of predictions for when we might have a vaccine for COVID-19. They were very generous with their time. So generous, in fact, that we couldn't contain all of their big ideas in that one episode. Thus is born this bonus episode. Dr. Trackman, Dr. Sag, Dr. Phillips, and Dr. Gepfid, thank you for allowing us to keep the conversation going. I'll kick things off with virologist Dr. Paula Trackman, Dean and Professor at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. Trackman gives us more background on coronaviruses in general, and this new coronavirus in particular. Take it away, Dr. Trackman. The current situation with COVID-19 and the SARS-CoV-2 virus is one that I think is illuminated by thinking about the history of lots of other viruses and vaccines. There are many, many types of coronaviruses. There are seasonal coronaviruses that infect people that cause nothing more than a common cold. There are coronaviruses of different animals as well. Many of the coronaviruses that have emerged in the last I don't know, 20 years to be dangerous for people started as bat viruses. So bats have a very unusual relationship with viruses. They play host to so many types of viruses. They're like the original Airbnb of viruses. They just are the perfect host and yet they don't get sick. So they have an amazing capacity to fight off the viruses. I'm never going to think of Airbnb in quite the same way again. But through a variety of environmental events, whether it's habitat change or wildlife trafficking or human uh, activities, um, viruses can sometimes jump from bats to other animals. So in MERS, coronavirus jumped to a camel. In SARS, it probably jumped to a civet, which is a type of large cat. And then these viruses jump to people. The current SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to that. We don't know what the intermediary animal was, but it's clear that it started its life as a bat virus and now is sadly very capable of infecting people and, and transmitting. But the basic blueprint for coronaviruses is standard. That's how we classify families of viruses because they have very similar sequences, very similar architecture. And so people had been getting ready to prepare a vaccine for SARS and for MERS and studying 
what the important proteins were that induced an immune response. And so they knew already to focus on this surface protein called the spike protein that you may have read about in the media. So what I understand Dr. Trackman to be saying is that all the research and study that's already been done with SARS and MERS and other diseases has helped us to better understand COVID-19 and this new coronavirus that causes it. They had already been preparing reagents to analyze ways of eliciting immune response to the spike protein. And the technologies that are out there now, the, the vaccines that are being investigated and developed in academics, in pharma, in biotech, are based around the spike protein. So I think that's given us a very strong rationale and, and a leg up because those tools were already being developed. So the question, I think, is how do you elicit that? Sometimes vaccines are made by using live attenuated viruses like vaccinia was, or the live flu nasomist is a live attenuated vaccine. Sometimes they're made by killing viruses, fixing them, inactivating them. There are other, like polio vaccine, can be made that way. Everybody wants to make sure that the vaccine is going to be very safe. So they're actually using modern molecular biology to take the gene for the spike protein and put it in something that's easy to produce, safe, like DNA or RNA that would be administered, which would come into a, a vaccinated person's cells and make those cells churn out high levels of the spike protein, which the body would then recognize and respond to. And these are the approaches that are getting the most traction right now because they look safe and they can be produced much more rapidly than um, some conventional vaccine. The goal is to have an effective and safe vaccine, perhaps in a year, which I think is truly remarkable. And it shows how scientists and health professionals and, and, and biotech and pharma industry have rallied around this and um, really made it a priority to, to fast track this in a very safe and effective way. So I believe there's a lot of cooperation and a lot of intent to have this vaccine. And again, I want to reassure that from everything I've read and everyone I've spoken to, Although this is going to set records for time and speed, all of the appropriate uh, testing and safety controls are in place. And I think it's worth stepping back and realizing the sort of amazing things that can happen when scientists pull together and have decades of study of the underlying mechanisms a virus uses, understanding of the immune system, and can, can rally together and use modern technologies to develop a vaccine that's effective and safe and can eradicate something. Thank you, Dr. Trackman. I'm curious if my UAB colleague, Dr. Paul Gepford, is equally optimistic. I will start by saying that the world record right now for vaccine development is four years, and that's for the mumps vaccine. And all the other vaccines have taken much longer. So just think about that when we're talking about COVID vaccine development. Uh, I think you're telling me to stand down. I know you're directly involved with COVID-19 vaccine studies. Are you able to share with us how those studies are progressing? So as a first start, there's a company called Altimune that um, is a small startup company that has 
a COVID vaccine that is in the preclinical development phase. So this is prior to humans. So they want to know if it actually works to induce an immune response in animals. And they're working with Dr. Fran Lund at UAB, uh, and she's testing it in mice to see if this is an intranasal vaccine, which is kind of exciting because that's where the infection is occurring. Potentially, if you deliver a vaccine at the site of infection, it may work better. If that looks good in animal models, uh, UAB is hoping to test that vaccine uh, in the fall. Uh, and that would be the first time in humans for that vaccine. We are also involved with three other companies to develop a vaccine. And we're involved with a phase two study with a, a company that I'm not supposed to talk about yet. But, that, but the, it is a, another RNA type of vaccine. It's like Moderna, but it's not Moderna. And that's going to be a phase two study that is starting this month as soon as we get IRB approval. So hopefully they'll rapidly approve that for us to start vaccinating. Uh, and that's just gonna be in about 40 people or so. And then Sanofi, which is a huge vaccine manufacturer, they make a protein type vaccine and they're gonna rapidly move that forward, but they're gonna start with, the, again, a phase one study and then rapidly go to efficacy study with hopefully in two months. The other part that we're doing for vaccine study is even, we still don't know, even though we're developing all those, these vaccines, what type of immune response is actually protected against COVID disease. So let's say 80%, it's more or less, have very mild or asymptomatic infection with COVID. They don't have any symptoms at all. 20% get very sick with it. So what we would like to know is what is it about the immune response in those 80% that they're doing really well compared to the 20% who don't. Because if we know what immune response they're getting that's protecting them, then we'll know better how to make a vaccine to do that. Um, and so my lab and some other labs are looking at that as well. We're looking at antibodies, we're looking at T cells, some people are looking at uh, neutrophils, things like that. And then AstraZeneca is, they've uh, partnered with the University of Oxford in England uh, with this recombinant chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine. Uh, and again, it delivers the surface protein or the, what's called the spike protein of coronavirus. I don't know the human data yet. That study will start in August and that will be an efficacy study. So that's the one where we have to enroll 30,000 people in aggregate. Now, UAB is obviously not going to enroll 30,000 people. We're hoping to enroll 500 people, though, in two months. In order to do that, we have to actually find sort of hot pockets of infection. And there are lots of ideas for that. How specifically do you plan to find those hot pockets? There's some social media platforms and cell phone data where you can find out where different areas are getting infected. There's also Alabama data. So right now, for instance, Montgomery is a hot spot. So our idea will be that we'll have a mobile uh, van or mobile medical vehicle where we'll go down to Montgomery and vaccinate a whole bunch of people and then follow them over time. We also were thinking about vaccinating the Mercedes plant, for instance, or the Amazon distribution center, places where people have to work that are very, very close together. And, and so those are the types of things that we're, we're looking into. So I, I do think that we have a good chance of it coming out in January. But my, if I had to make my best guess, I'm thinking a year from now is when we'll have a vaccine.
if you just want me to sort of give a ballpark, yes. I want our listeners to know that we are recording this episode in June of 2020. I can tell you that Paul's prediction of getting a vaccine a year from now sounds pretty good to me. But it's not just about developing the vaccine. There's also the matter of manufacturing it, educating the people about the importance of taking it, and then, of course, getting it to them. The other thing that people don't talk about is sometimes manufacturing a vaccine is difficult. Now, mRNA vaccines are a lot easier to manufacture, but that may not be the one that works. I think the recombinant chimpanzee adenovirus vaccine is more difficult to manufacture. And sometimes, you know, we've had vaccine trials that have um, not gotten off the ground because they couldn't produce the product correctly. So that's a possibility. Um, it's possible that there'll be some untoward side effect. It's possible that it won't work. I mean, we've been testing HIV vaccines since 1990, uh, and they've all been, for the most part, very safe, but none of them have worked. <laughs> I think HIV is a very high bar. I think it's a much higher bar to develop a vaccine for that than for COVID-19. And as for the importance of us taking the vaccine once we do have it, well, listeners of our smallpox episode will not be surprised to hear that my other UAB colleague, Dr. Mike Sag, has an opinion on this too. My best guess is that most 10 million have been infected so far, maybe 20 million. So that leaves 300 million people who ideally may need to be vaccinated, and I'm figuring at least two doses. So that's 600 million. That's just for the U.S. This is a global pandemic. So that means that we have to have doses for billions of people if we're going to really stop this virus. And a key concept of public health is a virus is not eliminated anywhere until it's eliminated everywhere. So we can't just jump on an island here of the, of the North American continent and just kind of sh- hunker down and say, well, we've got this controlled unless we want to close our borders to all travel forever. So we're part of a global community, whether we like it or not, and we've got to be a global citizen. And what frankly disturbs me as a clinician and as a public health person is that people refuse to take those vaccines or have their children vaccinated. And I keep thinking, why? And the only answer is, in my mind, is that they never saw the ravages of these diseases in their natural form. And so we can take lessons from COVID right now. If someone said, we had a safe vaccine for you that will prevent you from getting this horrible disease that I suffered through, and we can get it and prevent this from happening in you, wouldn't you want that? Of course you would. Now, the operative phrase there is safety. And that's going to be one of the limiting factors as we come out of the vaccine testing for COVID, for example, is that we may see some efficacy or effectiveness, but we have to see that it's safe. Pediatrician Alice Phillips offers some insight into why some people may feel reluctant to take a new vaccine. People are unaware of these diseases. They take this health for granted. And so one thing we try to do is tell the stories. Tell the stories of the kids who do get these illnesses. Tell the stories of what pertussis looks like 
in our most vulnerable one mother who can't have that vaccine yet and is in the ICU struggling to breathe. Tell the stories of uh, a child with meningitis. Tell our own personal stories. My own mother had polio as a child. And so I talked to her about that and what was it like? And she was in the hospital away from her family for six months. And I see the consequences of that illness to this day. I love it when grandmothers come in with moms who are a little vaccine worried because they'll say, man, when I was a kid, they would shut down the swimming pool. They would close the movie theater because we were having a polio or a measles outbreak. And that sounds kind of familiar right now to us, I think. And so um, not that I'm happy that we're having to go through this, but it's an example of what happens when we have an illness in the community that we cannot stop. We have to shut down. And that happened a lot in the past. We've forgotten about that. And so we just have to keep teaching and educating our families about how important these vaccines are. We want the majority of people, hopefully all people, to, to have access to and to step up and to get vaccinated because that's what public health is all about. It's about understanding the needs of the community and doing what's good for you, for your family, your friends, and everybody in the community. We eradicated smallpox. Let's treat COVID. I mean, this is something we can do, and it's something we should all be proud of and stunned by. And if we can send a man to the moon, we can make a vaccine, and we can have everybody in society vaccinated. I'll end on that upbeat note. It does give me hope that so many great minds are working collaboratively on developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Once that's been achieved, we can focus on getting it manufactured and distributed. First, to those who need it most, and then to everyone. This is, indeed, our modern-day moonshot. If you'd like to learn the fascinating story of how the smallpox vaccine was discovered more than 200 years ago, please download and listen to our episode, Smallpox Vaccine, Why the World's First Vaccine Matters Now. Game Changers in Medicine is a dramatic health production. Sean Maloney is the executive producer. Rolando Nieves is our showrunner and editor. Sharon Johnson is our researcher and writer. Lauren Wiegand and Tom Slavikowski are producers. Ryan Liatsis is our audio engineer. A dramatic health production.